It's good to uh, be back at Great Parks. The last time I uh, was, I was not here, but I was with you because uh, I spoke online September 2020. I checked my records, and I won't ask you to uh, tell me what I spoke on. I'll tell you. It was on Joel, the book of Joel, and it was about the years the locusts have eaten. Um, I, I love coming here because I've preached from Cape Town to Oslo, Mexico to Miami, but to come from Malden to Great Parks is the shortest journey I ever make when I'm preaching. So thank you very much for uh, inviting me. Let's turn to God's Word, and it's um, Jonah chapter 4. We're going to read Jonah chapter 4, and uh, as you've already heard, uh, you've been doing studies in this book, and uh, this is the concluding study uh, from Jonah chapter 4, and we're going to read from uh, the beginning of that chapter. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life. For it is better for me to die than to live. But the, the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. And there he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I was dead. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you didn't tend it or make it grow, it sprang open overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people? who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. This is God's word, and we give him thanks for his word. Well, from Sunday school days, we think of uh, Jonah, the book of Jonah, as the story of Jonah and the whale. But uh, the theme of the book is all about God. The great fish is mentioned four times, and the great city of Nineveh nine times, and there's only 13 references to Jonah, but 38 times God is mentioned. This book is a book about God. And the focus of the story is not what Jonah did or said, it was where God sent him. And uh, moving on, that's right. The book opens with verse 1, go to the great city of Nineveh, God's command, 
and it closes with God's question, should I not be concerned about that great city? So you can see by the bookends of the opening verse and the closing verse where God wants the emphasis to be. And I suggest it's very helpful as we remind ourselves on this closing study in Jonah to remind ourselves this is Jonah's autobiography. Although he's not named as you know, some other prophet books are, it's obvious that we only know this story. It's a historical story because Jonah's telling a story and he's really saying, don't let what happened to me happen to you. There'll be lessons about God uh, and about keeping in step with God. So let me remind you about the uh, city of Nineveh uh, where Jonah went. We're talking about um, 800 years before the birth of Christ. And uh, Nineveh was the capital city of the mighty Assyrian Empire. It had a reputation for terrible cruelty and oppression. It gloried in violence and it executed terrible punishments. Whenever Assyria invaded um, and captured a country, uh, they were renowned, their soldiers, for amputating limbs and burning people alive. If they went into a village, they would assemble the village and they would very often put the eyes out of the leaders of the village. They would assemble the village um, and uh, make them parade past poles on which there were the decapitated heads of their loved ones. This was a terrorist state. And perhaps you can understand, because we know how our own emotions have been stirred when we've seen the scenes from Ukraine, perhaps you can understand Jonah's reluctance to obey God's command. Go and preach to this city of Nineveh, because I have seen its wickedness. And Jonah declines God's invitation. He thought Nineveh uh, was a very cruel uh, enemy. Uh, it was a fierce enemy, not just yet. Let's go back. Um, it was a very cruel enemy, and uh, Israel hated Assyria. This city deserved punishment, not mercy. And he was probably also thinking of his own reputation. He was thinking of uh, back home in Israel. Uh, we all know what Israel thought of Assyria. And for him to gain the reputation of being a peacemaker, a messenger of peace to a sworn enemy. How can a good God give a terrorist state a chance to experience his mercy? So that's why he boards a ship and heads a thousand miles away from Nineveh. He goes from one end of the Mediterranean to the other. As Tim Keller says in his great book on Jonah, Jonah bought a one-way ticket to the end of the world. And I have some sympathy with Jonah for running away from the Lord. Have you never felt called by God to do something you didn't want to do? And how did you respond? Jonah, in many ways, stands for believers in any generation who, when they're called to do a difficult thing, find themselves out of step with God and they run. But God's not going to give up on Jonah. He runs with the runaway. And Jonah has to learn the truth of Psalm 139. Is there anywhere where I can flee from your presence? We know the answer to the question. So God sends two things as he sails the Mediterranean. First, he sends a violent storm that threatens to capsize the ship. And Jonah notices this is God's storm. The Lord is disciplining him. That's why he invites the sailors to throw him overboard to save those on the ship. 
And once they do, the sea grows calm. And then secondly, God sends the great fish that swallows Jonah. And he lives inside the fish for three days and three nights. Now, whilst the fish is not the focus of the story, which is why you haven't got a picture on the wall um, showing it, it's worth noticing, they've got people with fishing experience here this morning, there are stories of sailors surviving being swallowed by a sperm whale. Sperm whales have huge mouths, 20 feet long, 15 feet high, and 9 feet wide. And there's a well-documented story in the 1900s of a James Barclay working on a whaling ship, Star of the East, who was swallowed by a sperm whale and survived to tell the story. So don't have any problems with the historical accuracy of what this book is about. Jesus had no problems, which is why in Matthew chapter 12, he illustrates from the life of Jonah his own death and resurrection. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So from the inside of the fish, Jonah offers a great prayer. He's a spiritual man who understands what's happening. God had called him to go to the great city. He had disobeyed God, and God was now chastising him. That's why in chapter 2, we've already looked at, he offers this great prayer. You, Lord, hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the sea. It was your waves, your breakers that swirled about me. This is a man, a believer, who knows he's out of step with God. He wants to put it right. That's why he prays, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. Jonah's not bitter. At this moment, he knows he's suffering because of his disobedience. How do we respond when God disciplines and chastises us? Not innocent suffering, but suffering because of disobedience. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, Never make light of the Lord's discipline. Don't lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those that he loves. Let me show you this picture. <clears throat> In March 1999, NATO forces bombed the beautiful city of Novi Sad in Serbia. And uh, it went on for a few days. Many, about a thousand Yugoslav troops, as they were then, lost their lives. And something like 400 citizens uh, lost their lives as well. Six months after the bombing took place, I went in with a, a human uh, aid convoy with some friends, uh, met some Serbian Christians. And I have to say, I was very nervous. I belonged to a NATO country. Uh, but they took me to visit um, a, a Christian family who had lived uh, on the side of the Danube in Novi Sad, which was a beautiful uh, side of that city. And their house was just below the TV station. And uh, NATO forces had particularly targeted bridges and uh, communication centers. And although their house wasn't completely destroyed, it had been very badly damaged. And the, the Christian aid agency um, felt that I should um, meet this couple, lovely Christian couple. And they said how they'd made their house an idol. 
They'd spent thousands of whatever the currency was on their house and um, it had become a, a real showpiece. And they said that they realized, they quoted Hebrews 12 to me, they realized that although NATO bombs had fallen because of political conflict, that God's discipline had been upon their lives. And they had to rededicate themselves. They knew they could they'd build the house, but this time it wouldn't be a house for them. It would be a house for others. It would be God's house. Because it was his house, but they hadn't treated it as his house. And it was interesting, when you read Jonah chapter 2 and verse 8, in the belly of the whale, he, he prays this prayer, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And this couple felt they had forfeited the grace. And they came to the Lord in repentance, even as Jonah came in repentance, and said, all that's happened to us is because of the hand of God upon us. Godly discipline comes from a wise and loving heavenly father. Jonah acknowledged it. My friends in Novi Sad acknowledged it. And so should we. And after three days, you'll know, um, three days and nights, God commanded the fish to vomit Jonah onto the, the land. And our next slide reminds us in chapter 3 how the command from God to go and preach to Nineveh is issued for a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message I gave you. This time, Jonah obeys. And it's worth noting that at the time Jonah arrived in Nineveh, uh, it's a period of political turmoil. It was a political uh, a time of economic decline. And in 763 BC, there had actually been an eclipse of the sun where when darkness came over the whole city, just people fell down terrified. They felt it was some malign influence that was coming from the gods. And I would simply say to you, and we know this from experience, always read the signs of the times that behind the news bulletins that we see, terrible things happening in Ukraine and Russia involved and involving the whole of Europe. Remember, God often uses political uncertainty, social unrest, and even wars to open the hearts of people to the message of the gospel. Well, Jonah had a very clear message for these people who maybe their hearts had been prepared. It was a short, very short sermon, shorter than today's. It was simply this, 40 more days, and this city will be destroyed. It may be that Jonah shared some of his personal testimony uh, as he gave the word that God asked him to do. We don't know. All we know is when the sermon was delivered, a, a powerful response came. The Ninevites believed God. The king took off his royal robes, put on sackcloth, and issued the decree. Chapter 3, verse 7. Let everyone, he said, call urgently on God. If we give up our evil ways, who knows, God may relent and have compassion on the city. Pray God that our political leaders would recognize the signs of the times and would say similar things. Well, when God saw the response of the city, he had compassion on them. He didn't bring about the threatened destruction of uh, the great city of Nineveh. What a moment for Jonah. Wouldn't you think, yes, he would be tired, weary, spiritually drained, he had done what the Lord had asked him. He had been delivered out of the fish and his message of judgment had been received. What an amazingly fruitful outcome. This should be one happy evangelist. Instead, look at how chapter 4 opens. Jonah was greatly displeased 
And he became very angry with God. Well, here we see the next picture. And if you're eagle-eyed, you'll see the last one. He didn't have a beard. Uh, this one he does. I just couldn't find one which matched the previous picture. The context of chapter 4 is just this. Jonah has left the city. Verse 5 says he sits down in a place east of the city. He's delivered his message of judgment. And he's now waiting and watching for 40 days. That was his message. After 40 days, there will be destruction. But the fire of judgment never happens. God's judgment fails to happen, and so Jonah offers an angry prayer. He tells God he's so angry with God that he's ready to die. And then he says to the Lord, I knew this would happen. That's why I didn't want to go to Nineveh. I never wanted to travel. He would have been brought up um, as a Jewish boy in the great tradition of Exodus chapter 33, what God said to Moses. God said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. He would have been taught that um, as a boy in the Jewish traditions. In his heart of hearts, he wanted the city to be wiped out. That's what a terrorist state deserves for dreadful crimes. And maybe he was thinking of his reputation back home. It's gone from better to worse. It was bad enough giving a message. But to think a whole city repented. Imagine how that would go down. What the believers back home might say when they heard what his preaching ministry had accomplished. I was pondering uh, on this word this week and it was difficult preparing this word and not thinking of President Putin. What some have called at the moment um, a terrorist state. The terrible sufferings we've witnessed. Some of you will know how important it is for people to have ready access to medical attention, medication from a nearby pharmacy. To think of those children suffering with cancer Many disabled children, orphanages abandoned apart from faithful workers. War crimes have been committed. I've heard many angry comments about Mr. Putin from Christians. I've been present in prayer meetings where prayers have been asked, asking God to overthrow him. He's cruel and heartless and deserves to die. Now put yourself in the shoes of a Jonah with the, the terrible reputation of Assyria the hated enemy of Israel. Can you imagine a modern-day owner hearing a call from God not to drive an aid convoy to Ukraine, not to go to Poland to bring refugees back to the UK, but to go to the very heart of Moscow to call on President Putin and his government to repent, to turn from their wicked ways and show remorse, and then the worst of all outcomes, there is repentance and remorse. And hang on, we say to ourselves, well, what about justice and judgment? Surely for what's happened, people need to be brought to account. I'm trying to stand in the shoes of Jonah to understand why he would feel this way about this evil terrorist regime. He was reluctant to go. He was angry with God. He wanted not God's mercy, but he wanted God's judgment. Then look at that little funny gardening parable in chapter 4. 
I, I think the plant, what the old AV calls a good, was probably a castor oil plant. These castor oil plants, they're like a tree after five or six months. Uh, they can grow to a height of about 10 feet tall. Uh, the one that is behind in that picture is the, is the withered one. And by some miracle, there has been a rapid growth. This plant which God provides, everything is God's provision, if you've noticed. It's God's storm, God's wind, God's fish. And it's now God's castor oil plant and God's worm that comes in and eats the plant which has arrived overnight and disappears. It provides Jonah with great shade. And he grows very fond of this plant. And that's why God says to him in verse 10, how can you have affection for a plant that you've just met? What do you know about the devotion of a gardener? A gardener patiently plants, nurtures, waters, watches the plant grow and sees it wither and die. God uses the plant to speak to Jonah's hard heart. This is how I feel about the city of Nineveh. All 120,000 of them, I made them. And in my grace, I nurtured them. And your concern for this plant is nothing compared to my love for these people who can't even turn their right hand from their left. And their cattle as well. That shows God's concern for their economic well-being. So for the second time, you hear Jonah say, I want to die. God has shown mercy to Jonah, rescuing him from the sea. But Jonah can't cope with God's mercy extended to a terrorist regime. That's a wonderful story, isn't it? This story of God's patient dealing with a, a believer who refused to obey him was out of step with God's purpose. And the question that the book ends with, should I not be concerned about this great city? Well, we're not told how Jonah answered the question. And when you find a little bit of the parables of Jesus, when you find that there's a, um, an unresolved issue, here's this question that left hanging. It's really a question to us that we might answer. So what are the lessons we can learn? I suggest there are four, and here they are. Lesson number one, God always does salvation his way. Perhaps you sympathize with Jonah and say, well, I wouldn't have handled Nineveh that way, but you're not God. And do you remember the great passage of Jeremiah, chapter 29? Israel had been taken off into exile, into the city of Babylon, another cruel empire. And Jeremiah writes this amazing letter. As thousands of refugees are route-marched to a foreign place, city of Jerusalem burning behind them, Jeremiah's message was to pray for the prosperity of the city of Babylon. He says, you're going to be there for 70 years. So settle down, build houses, get involved in the life of a pagan nation. And that amazing verse 11, we often quote it for ourselves, but this is where it comes from. God says, I have plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you hope and a future. Surely that's the lesson we learn again and again from Scripture, that God always does salvation his way. Some people in Jericho were deeply angry that Zacchaeus should be the person that Jesus went home to have tea with. He had robbed that community, which is why when he was saved, he restored back into the community what he had taken from them. It's a big lesson. It runs all the way through Scripture. 
It's God's salvation story, not ours. You realise if it was left to us, the Christian family would be much smaller if it was left to us to choose who would belong. Here's the second thing. God knows how we struggle with the mystery of his mercy. Jonah's not unusual in thinking that some people don't deserve God's love. This week, the newspapers were talking about Baby P's mother, who served 13 years for terrible cruelty, uh, which led to the death of her child. She's done 13 years. She's now expected to be out on parole. Mercy. God's mercy to President Putin. Our default position, even as Christians, is often punishment and judgment. Now, friends, there will be a day of reckoning when Jesus, the judge, will come. In the end, we know that God has the last word. But meanwhile, we're living in a day of grace when God's heart is compassion for people. And I invite you to join me in asking the Lord to help us as we struggle with the mystery of his mercy. And the third thing to learn, I think, from the book of Jonah is that God cares for us even when we disobey him. Jonah was a runaway prophet and God could have chosen to choose another messenger to go to Nineveh, an obedient messenger. But instead, he persisted with Jonah. He ran with the runaway. It was God who sent the storm and it was God's wind that blew and God who provided the fish and God who brought him to the dry land. God's love for Jonah I think at this point is greater than Jonah's love for God. And thankfully I don't know the ins and outs of your life. But I can say to you perhaps all of us need to hear this message of encouragement today that God loves you enough to persist with you. He wants to use your life in his service. Remember Jonah I think is telling his own story here. And the warning comes I think don't don't be like me. Don't run from God. Get in step with God. And the fourth lesson I think we learn from the book of Jonah is this. God loves the city. The question is, do we share his love? We can't escape that closing question in the book. Um, should I be concerned about that great city? It's interesting how Jonah did the necessary. What do I mean by the necessary? Well, he was asked to deliver the message. And he went and he did what was asked of him, but I don't think his heart was in it, which is why he left the city straight after he had preached the sermon. I think a kind-hearted prophet would have probably stayed around to offer comfort and advice and maybe questions and where did you come from, what's happened to you, but he couldn't get out quick enough. It showed his heart was not in it, Reminds us of that remarkable scene of the prophet, Jesus, coming to uh, a Jerusalem that was going to reject him. Many had received, but many hadn't. And he wept over the city. Where's the weeping in Jonah? It's all anger. All hardness of heart. He had reluctantly done what God had commanded, and all he was doing was sitting, watching, and waiting for judgment to fall. In his heart, you see, he was an Israel nationalist. Today we would say he bordered on being a racist. Jews 
were the only people who counted in God's eyes. They were the chosen people. That's why there was such conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders when he came. And you have the early days of the Acts of the Apostles when the church had to get its mind round that the gospel, the good news of God's salvation was for all people, not Jews. The great moment when Peter had that vision that God gave him. That, uh, and if that vision hadn't come, that the gospel was for all, then we would not have the Christian church as we know it today. My final slide is this. I've turned that question into should we not be concerned for Torbay? Torbay may not be classed as a city, but in fact we're, we're a larger population than Nineveh. And you're a wonderful church, Great Parks, in what you do for children, and most of the notices are about outreach, the ministry of camps and schools and so on. And you're a praying church. You're a mission-reminded church. So I suppose the challenge, and in a moment I just want us to stare at those pictures, and I want you to ponder, are there any areas within the circumference of our ministry here that we have neglected, overlooked, a focus on a school, a street, a family. And is our heart really in it? Are we doing it because God's asked us to do it? But is there a heart which is full of compassion so that we might have that heart for people that Jesus had when he came just pause in quiet prayer for a moment and Lord speak to us through this ancient story we pray may the lessons about our heavenly father so clearly enunciated in this wonderful book of Jonah. Bring them right home, I pray, to great parks. Help us to hear that, that question hovering over our church fellowship. Should I not be concerned for this great region of Torbay? And we call upon you by your Holy Spirit to speak into our hearts about uh, an area, a district, a school, a family, a street. And may we at all times this week, in the workplace, in the home with our neighbours, be in step with the God who said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. May we be the people who are able to say we can do all things, all things, through Christ who strengthens us. In his name we pray. Amen.